1995, a fire consumed a home in Prairie Village, Kansas. The fire, which claimed the lives of two children, showed that things were not always what they seemed. I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. Unless this is your first time listening, then welcome. Tonight's case is one that was recommended to me about three years ago when Insight was just getting started. My friend Kelly and I were sitting at a park in Prairie Village, Kansas, with our kids running around, and I was telling her about the new podcast that I was getting into. Now, Kelly's not into true crime, so she's probably not even listening to this, but she said you should cover the case of the doctor who killed her kids in a fire. It happened right over there and pointed vaguely away from the park. I had actually never heard of this case before. So for about three years, I've wanted to cover this, the Green Farrar fire case. The main research for this case was done by Haley Gray, so huge thank you to her for that. The book Bitter Harvest by Anne Rule was a big source for this episode. Quick content warning, this case does involve the deaths of two children, though as always, I'm not going to be graphic with it. So let's get started at the beginning with the woman who is at the center of this case, Deborah Green. She was born Deborah Jones in 1951. She grew up in Illinois and graduated from high school from Peoria. Deborah was considered highly gifted. She excelled in school, even though she pretty much never studied. And when I say she didn't study, I mean that she barely cracked the textbook. She remembered everything she needed from lessons and lectures and assignments, so she didn't really need to read those textbooks or study the material after she had already heard it once. Her IQ was at 165, which is in the high genius range. As many people listening know, your IQ score is actually a composite of a couple different tests. My guess is that Deborah's working memory score was off the charts. People with very strong working memories are very good at school. On the other side, those who don't have very good working memories often deal with learning issues. Deborah had an older sister who was also very intelligent, and their mother, Joan, pushed their academic pursuits. Joan herself had planned on going to college and becoming a teacher, but she had to leave school in the late 1940s when her first child was born. She was relatively young, and she gave in to the societal pressure to become the perfect homemaker. She resented a little that she couldn't pursue academics, so she pushed her daughters. She was maybe the academic version of a stage mom in some ways, though Deborah has never been very willing to say anything bad about her childhood. 
But Deborah was getting straight A's in top-level classes. She did a ton of activities. She was on the student council. She did a concert choir. She was in the French club and so on. When Deborah graduated in 1969, she was the co-valedictorian. Deborah initially planned on becoming a chemical engineer when she went to the University of Illinois, but pretty early on, she switched to majoring in chemistry with a pre-med focus instead. She decided to become a doctor. At the university, she met an engineering student named Dwayne Green, and they began a serious relationship. She graduated from the University of Illinois in 1972, earning her BS in just three years. When she went to med school at the University of Kansas, Duane followed her, and they married in 1974. And then Deborah finished medical school in 1975, again in just three years. So she finished her undergraduate and graduate work in six years, and reportedly, she hardly studied. She read books all the time, but she liked to escape into novels, not anatomy textbooks. For her residency, Deborah went into emergency medicine as a specialty. When she had done the previous rotations that you do at the end of med school, she realized that she loved the pace of the ER. She loved the variety of what she saw there. She and Duane moved to Independence, Missouri, while she did her residency at Truman Medical Center's ER. For the sake of clarity through this episode, Deborah will bounce back and forth between Kansas and Missouri in the story, but the area we're talking about is the border of the two states. So this is all really part of the same Kansas City metro area. We're really just talking about her moving a town or two over. While at Truman doing her residency, Deborah and Duane split around 1978. So they were only married for about four years. According to Deborah, it was as simple as that they just didn't have that much in common. And the divorce was amicable. They just went their separate ways. But because Deborah had taken Dwayne's last name and graduated medical school with that name, and now she was doing her residency under that name, she decided to keep it for professional reasons. While separated from Dwayne but not yet divorced, Deborah met a medical student named Michael Farrar. Michael was in his final year of medical school and doing rotations when he ended up doing the ER rotation at Truman, where Deborah was doing her residency. Michael was about four years younger than Deborah, so he was looking at residency programs about the same time she was wrapping up hers. But they hit it off right away. It was not characterized by either of them as some passionate physical attraction. They were attracted to each other's intelligence. Deborah was incredibly witty. She was so good in conversations. Sometimes she'd be a little biting, but she was always just funny and smart. And Michael was really driven, and Deborah knew that he would be successful in any career path. They could have 
a very stable life together. And these were the things that they were each looking for in a spouse. Michael moved in with Deborah. Her divorce from Dwayne was final in December 1978. In May 1979, she married Michael. Michael later said that on their wedding day, standing at the altar, he had cold feet. There were some things he really didn't love about their relationship. One was the lack of physical affection. Another was that Deborah would go full steam ahead on things without a lot of consideration for his input. And this really came out when they planned the wedding. Deborah would also go from fine to almost tantruming over what he saw as little things. She would lash out in public. She would yell at the person who zipped into the parking spot they were waiting for. And he frankly found these outbursts embarrassing. He loved her and believed she loved him, so they went through with the wedding. Immediately after the wedding, though, one of his concerns, which was the lack of physical intimacy, came up. And I mean immediately. Deborah was not interested in having sex and consummating the marriage that night. She told him she just wanted to read her book. She did have sex with Michael that night, since it was their honeymoon, but then just turned right back to her book after. So this may be that line between sex and intimacy right here. They were completely mismatched in this regard going forward. It wasn't just this night. They had very different needs, and this would remain an issue for the rest of their marriage. It was time for Michael to start his residency not long after they married, so they moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. He was doing a residency in internal medicine, so Deborah found a job at Jewish Hospital in their ER. But after having done the ER for her entire residency, Deborah was finding that those really exciting, you never know what will happen moments in the ER actually don't happen that often. It was generally people coming in for minor complaints, things that they could have just gone to their regular doctor for, but they waited until after office hours or they waited until they were really sick. So she was spending more time on sinus infections and earaches than she really cared to. So getting bored in the ER, Deborah decided to start a new fellowship in internal medicine. Basically, a fellowship is almost like doing your residency again, but in a new specialty. She eventually ended up focusing on oncology and hematology. While they were in Cincinnati, Deborah ended up with some health issues. She was dealing with insomnia, and she was dealing with migraines, and those possibly were linked. The migraines were the type that would cause dizziness and affect her balance. She also ended up with some type of infection in her wrist, and she needed surgery on it. So in the midst of all of this happening, Michael started finding pill bottles around, which you would expect to see some pain pills with her surgery and her migraines. But these bottles had the names of other people on them. These were Deborah's patients. 
Michael thought she might be pocketing their medications. Now, she had excuses when he confronted her. You know, she's doing her work. She accidentally sticks stuff in her pockets and comes home and, oh, look, how'd this get here? And Michael opted to believe her that she was mistakenly taking these home. But I'm sure on some level, he really didn't believe her. Then in 1981, Deborah and Michael found out they were having their first baby. He was born in January of 1982. They named him Timothy. After a six-week maternity leave, Deborah returned to her fellowship, leaving Tim with the nanny. Nearly three years later, baby number two came along, a little girl they named Kate. Again, Deborah took the standard six-week leave at the time. It wouldn't be until 1993 in the U.S. that it was mandated that women get 12 weeks of maternity leave, which is still, might I note, four weeks less than the World Health Organization's recommended minimum. Just saying. 16 weeks is the recommended minimum. Women in the U.S. get 12 weeks. At the time Deborah was having kids, they got six weeks. Anyway, Deborah finished her fellowship in hematology and oncology in 1985, while Michael wrapped up his residency and began a cardiology fellowship. Deborah took her board exams for the oncology hematology specialty, and she failed them. For the first time in her life, she failed. While Michael was spending his free time from the hospital and after the kids were in bed studying medical books, Deborah would head to bed with a novel. So when she sat those board exams, she wasn't prepared. Because she never had to study before, she thought she'd do fine like she always did, but that's not how it worked out this time. It's possible this material was simply harder than anything she had encountered to this point. It's also possible that her insomnia and her migraines and her possible prescription drug use and maybe just the fatigue of being a parent to young kids while working full-time, maybe these things meant she wasn't as focused on the material as she was when she took classes and did these internships and fellowships when she didn't have these distractions. Regardless, Deborah was devastated when she found out she failed. Absolutely gutted. And having not failed at things before, Deborah also lacked the ability to cope. She yelled and she blamed everyone except herself, of course. But instead of buckling down and studying and passing the exam, she decided to go into private practice in oncology and hematology, but without the board certification. Nowadays, it's easy to know if your doctor is board certified, thanks to the internet, but it wasn't quite that way in the mid-1980s. So it is possible her patients didn't know if she was board certified, didn't know to ask. And it is perfectly legal for a licensed doctor to not be board certified 
in the specialty they practice. Board certification is an extra step, and it lets patients know that their doctor has more than just general medical school knowledge in this subject. But it's not actually a legal requirement. With or without the certification, Deborah's patients didn't really love her as a doctor. Oncology means she's dealing with cancer patients who need a little extra bedside manner. Deborah came off as cold, and it really turned her patients off. Her coworkers even had trouble getting along with her as well. Deborah didn't stay in private practice in Cincinnati for very long because by the summer of 1986, Michael Farrar and Deborah Green moved their family back to Kansas City for a new job for Michael. Michael had grown up there, so he was happy to be back. And Deborah liked the area, and since she didn't really love her job in Ohio, it seemed like a positive move. When they arrived in Kansas City, Michael already had a job set up in a private practice, so Deborah stayed home with their two little ones until they got childcare arranged. Once a new nanny was found, Deborah also joined an established private practice. In this practice, Deborah ended up having the same issues she had in Cincinnati. Patients and coworkers found her unfeeling. Michael, who knew her better than they did, started seeing her as unsteady and a bit off, so he suspected she was using painkillers again. He looked around the house and found evidence of prescription drug use. So he confronted her, and she admitted to it this time and said she would stop. And based on the change in her behavior after he confronted her, it seems like she did. But her issues at work continued, and after about a year, she left that practice and started her own practice. Being able to do things her own way, not having to deal with the interpersonal relationships and office politics, she ended up finding more success than ever before. And then she became unexpectedly pregnant with a third child who was born in late 1988, and they named her Kelly. Deborah went on maternity leave again, and she's now in her late 30s. After Kelly was born, she was surprised when the baby weight stuck around. She had shed it so easily with the other two, but this time she just couldn't. Now, Deborah's entire sense of self is tied up in this concept that she is brilliant and successful and can do whatever she wants to do. She can make things happen. And now here she is, again, with a perceived failure. In the wake of this, she started showing signs of depression, which could also be linked to being postpartum as well. She stopped taking care of her appearance pretty much entirely, which was a marked change from how she presented herself before this. She was also dealing with some chronic knee pain that was getting worse. 
and she ended up deciding it was too much to juggle the kids, her pain, her low energy, plus a solo medical practice. She closed her office, and she took part-time work doing medical reviews and looking at things for Medicaid from home, and this let her focus more on her kids. Deborah was described by everyone as a very devoted mother. She had the kids in activities and would spend as much time as it took to get them where they needed to be. They lived in a nice house in a great area of Kansas City, Missouri. They had the kids enrolled in Pembroke Hill, which is one of the most exclusive and expensive private schools in Kansas City. Today, preschool there costs $16,000 a year. Elementary school is like $20,000, and then you're looking at $24,000 a year for high school. That's more than a lot of people pay for a year of college is what it costs to send your kid to preschool there. Then on top of having them in this top-tier school, she also had them in dance and sports and all of those things. Deborah attended everything. She cheered for the kids. She was really, by all reports, devoted to them. The marriage, well, that was suffering worse than ever. There was another point where Michael found pills again, so we're talking the third time, and Deborah again confessed that she had relapsed and promised she would stop them. Her emotional outbursts were getting worse. She would bang her head. She would beat her thighs, like, hard enough to leave bruises. She would break things. And Michael started working longer and longer hours to avoid these fights at home. But divorce didn't seem like something either one of them wanted, even though it doesn't sound like either one of them was that happy. Michael didn't want to leave his kids. If you remember, we're talking the late 80s, early 90s in Missouri. At this time, the courts were still functioning as though the mother got custody by default unless she could be proven unfit. So he was looking at being a weekend dad, and that's not what he wanted. He also wanted to make the marriage work because there were good times, too. It's not as though Deborah was always throwing fits. Deborah would still be funny and witty, and they'd have intelligent and deep conversations. Those moments still existed. Eventually, though, things kind of took a turn. Deborah began venting the marital issues to her kids, particularly the oldest son, Tim. We're starting like when he was 11 or 12, at the latest 11 or 12, when she started putting this on him. And she painted everything as Michael's fault. And Deborah, being a devoted mother, obviously Tim loved her very much. And so now Michael wasn't just fighting with Deborah. He was also having arguments with Tim, and Tim was taking up for his mother. And these arguments between Michael and Tim turned physical a couple of times. So this wasn't a good scene, and Michael thought the whole situation might improve if he removed himself. He was the one everyone was mad at, so maybe he was the problem. 
1994, he asked Deborah for a separation, and he moved into an apartment. Michael went to the house regularly and spent as much time with the kids as he could, even though he wasn't living there. It didn't look like they were heading to divorce even still. They were separated for four months, and they worked on the marriage during this time. Things did seem to be getting better with Michael having taken some space. One of the issues they had in Michael's view was their current house. Their house with three kids and all that stuff just overwhelmed him with the clutter and he felt cramped. He thought that might be causing some of the tension. Deborah was the one that was only working part-time and she was home and also societal expectations lined it up to where Deborah was the one who was expected to keep the house and she was a terrible housekeeper. So he thought if they moved to a bigger house, they could spread some of this stuff around and it wouldn't be quite so overwhelming. Deborah agreed to move because who doesn't want a bigger house? And they found one in Prairie Village, Kansas. Prairie Village is a very nice suburb and it's just over the state line from Kansas City. They border each other. So this was really just them moving a few miles down the road. But Michael, even though moving was his idea, started having second thoughts about this house. He was worried about committing to this much bigger mortgage, having it not sold their current house, and he still saw the reconciliation as a work in progress. And this was a big step that maybe he wasn't quite ready for. So he backed out of the deal. Deborah and the kids, and I'm sure the real estate agent, were all really disappointed. But Michael said they'd keep looking for a house that was more affordable. He still had his apartment, and Deborah and the kids could just stay in the current family home until they sorted things out. Shortly after backing out of this deal, Michael got a call from a neighbor that his house was on fire, not his apartment, but the family home. Deborah had taken the kids and the dog to Tim's soccer game, so thankfully no one was home. The house sustained $85,000 in damage, and the fire was determined to have been caused accidentally by an electrical cord that was, for some reason, wrapped around a pipe. Because it was ruled an accidental fire, their homeowner's insurance paid for the repairs. But Deborah and the kids had nowhere to go in the meantime, so Michael moved them into his apartment. Michael then went ahead and agreed to buy that home in Prairie Village. It was still on the market, and they needed somewhere to live. They were able to eventually put the repaired house on the market, and it sold pretty quickly and for a decent price. So it looked like financially this was going to work out. There wasn't going to be an issue in that regard, like Michael thought. And Michael and Deborah decided to address some of the other issues in their marriage, aside from the space. Michael was gone all the time at work, so he agreed to cut back his extra hours 
and be more present with the family. And now with the kids in school pretty much all day and Deborah only working part-time, Michael asked her if she would try a little harder with the household chores, try to keep the new house from getting as cluttered and overwhelming as the old house. And Deborah agreed to this. Fast forward seven to eight months, and they are completely back to where they were before the reconciliation. The new house was cluttered and dirty, and Michael was working a lot. So it was less than a year after the reconciliation that Michael realized that it was probably time to just go ahead and call it quits. It was clear the marriage wasn't working. They had tried. They gave it their best effort. It was time to move on. However, as Michael is coming to this realization, Tim also had a trip to Peru scheduled for the summer of 1995 through his school. So that's coming up while Michael is trying to decide how and when to ask Deborah for a divorce. Michael and Deborah were also both signed up to go on this trip to Peru. So Michael decided to just wait to discuss this until they all got back. He did not want to ruin this trip for Tim. He didn't know how Deborah was going to react and how she would act on the trip if he asked for the separation. He already knew she didn't care about making scenes in public. So they went on this trip together. Also on the school trip was another parent named Margaret. She was a nurse with two boys, and she was married to a doctor. Her marriage was also strained. Her husband battled severe and chronic depression, and mental health issues like that can be really tough on a marriage. At some point after the Peru trip, Margaret and Michael began an affair, and Michael once again asked Deborah about separating this time with the intention to divorce. Deborah started yelling to the children about how Michael was leaving them. And again, this was causing strain between Michael and his kids. Michael initially planned to move out again, get an apartment again, but Deborah began doing something she hadn't done before. She started drinking a lot. She was drinking so much in the evenings that she would often pass out more than go to sleep. He was worried about the kids overnight alone with her, so he didn't move out, even though he more or less considered them separated. I'm under the impression that he didn't think she was drinking during the day when she had to drive the kids around, when she had to take care of them, and she was only drinking. After all that was done, she would crack open whatever she was drinking and just drink for the evening and the night. And maybe it started that way. But by her own admission, Deborah said it did eventually progress to her driving under the influence with her kids in the car and even with kids she was giving rides places, friends, carpool kids, that kind of thing. And this wasn't the only way that Deborah's behavior was changing in the post-Peru period. One time, she called Michael, telling him that she was walking the streets, hoping someone would kill her. 
He later found out that she was in the house with him when she was making this phone call. She was in the basement hiding under a bed. She called from a second line that they had installed for the kids' use. She was trying to make him worry about her. And she succeeded in doing that. As much as Michael wanted a divorce and a separation, he didn't want to see Deborah dead. He didn't want to see her ruined. But Michael didn't have a lot of time to process this because within a week of that weird phone call, he got really, really sick on August 11th, 1995. He had been in Peru a month before, so his first thought was that he contracted something. He was nauseous, he had vomiting and diarrhea, and he was sick for a full week, and he was getting worse when he was hospitalized on August 18th. He ended up with sepsis. Sepsis is often called blood poisoning, which is not a really great term for it. It's actually an extreme reaction to an infection. Best case scenario, it leads to some inflammation. Worst case scenario, organ failure and death. It's an incredibly serious condition. Michael spent a week in the hospital before he was well enough to go home. Got home, got sick again, went back to the hospital. A few days later, he was released. Less than a week after that, he had a relapse of whatever this illness was again and back in the hospital. A week later, he was sent home. So here we are. It's mid-September. He's been in and out of the hospital, and he's very weak. He's lost a lot of weight. Margaret, his girlfriend, made a comment about Deborah poisoning him since he always got sick after going home. But Michael completely brushed this off. Deborah had a short fuse. She was impulsive. Poisoning, that's long-term, that's planned, that's not impulsive. So if Deborah was going to hurt Michael, this didn't really fit. So he just wrote this off. But then on September 25th, Michael was searching Deborah's purse because he once again was worried she was on prescription drugs. But instead of finding the pills that he expected he would find, he found castor beans and empty vials of potassium chloride. Now, the castor beans, he kind of put in the back of his mind. It was the potassium chloride that worried him because his first thought was that Deborah was going to kill herself. He confronted her, and then he called the police. He wanted her committed. The police found Deborah to be, in their words, drunk and profane, but she was more or less cooperating with them. They took her to the hospital where she told the doctors she wasn't suicidal, and she actually, by the time they got to the hospital, was fairly calm. Then Michael arrived at the hospital. As soon as she saw him, Deborah completely changed. She spat on him. She started yelling curse words at him. And she said, you'll get these kids over our dead bodies. Without more context for this statement, it makes me think that Deborah thought that Michael was trying to get custody, that maybe calling the police, having her committed, having her ruled suicidal, was basically a ploy for custody. She was eventually calmed down enough that the nurses and the doctors left her unsupervised in the ER for a short period of time. 
and she took that opportunity to bolt. She left the ER, and she was later picked up walking towards her house. After being picked up, Deborah did agree to go to inpatient treatment at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka. The issue with her going voluntarily, though, is that she could also voluntarily check herself out, which is what she did. But while she was at the Menninger Clinic for those few days, she was diagnosed with depression, possibly linked to bipolar disorder, and suicidal impulses. She was put on medication. So let's fast forward a week. Deborah's back home from the hospital, and then Michael's internal monologue kicked in and was like, okay, now what about those castor beans? Because he had focused on the potassium chloride and the possible suicide attempt that the beans were kind of secondary. So we would break out Google. He broke out some old textbooks, and he found that castor beans can be used to extract ricin. So he looked up ricin and ricin poisoning, and the symptoms matched what he had gone through in August and September. And then he thought about what Margaret said and thought back to when he first got sick. He had eaten a chicken salad sandwich that Deborah had made for him and made a comment to her that it had an odd taste. Then he was getting sick every time he came home. Every time he came home, Deborah was preparing his food. Pretty sure now that Deborah was poisoning him, Michael moved into an apartment on October 5th, 1995. He figured he was at more risk staying there than the kids were with Deborah's drinking. They were 6, 10, and 13 at this point, so it's not like they were infants or toddlers getting into stuff. If Deborah drank herself to sleep, the kids would be okay while Michael sorted this out. In the meantime, and this is a little bit of an aside, but we'll come back to it later, Deborah knew Michael was seeing Margaret, and she had been calling Margaret's husband, David, trying to get him to help her break Michael and Margaret up. Margaret had also filed for divorce at this time. David, who had been battling depression for years, killed himself in October. So a lot was going on in these three months after the Peru trip. Deborah's attention-seeking behavior was through the roof. Michael was so sick. David killed himself, and it was only going to get worse from here. On October 24, 1995, 911 dispatch received a call around 12.20 in the morning where the caller didn't say anything before hanging up. The call was traced to Deborah Green's house, and another 911 call came in from Deborah's neighbor saying that there was a fire. Police arrived first and found the house in flames. Deborah was outside. By the time the fire department arrived at 1227, they found Deborah and Kate together. Ten-year-old Kate had managed to get out of her bedroom through her window and onto the roof of the garage. When Deborah saw her up there, she yelled for her to jump and said that she would catch her. Now, Deborah didn't catch her, but Kate was not injured in the fall. Kate told firefighters that her 13-year-old brother, Tim, and her 6-year-old sister, Kelly, were still inside. 
Deborah was standing with Kate, but she wasn't saying anything. Kate was doing all the talking. First responders tried to get into the house to get the kids, but it was way too dangerous. The fire had spread so rapidly that the structure was completely unstable. By the time they got it under control and cooled down enough to enter, it was a complete loss. The upstairs floor had even fallen into the downstairs. The fire was treated as suspicious from the start because of how quickly it spread. They suspected an accelerant had been used. Deborah was taken from the scene to be questioned. She said that before the fire, it was a typical day. Everyone was home by 9 p.m. She had a couple drinks with dinner and then went to bed. Some point between 10 and 11, she got up. She talked to Tim in the kitchen before he headed to bed. The girls were already asleep. Now, Deborah was a bit inconsistent and hazy on exact times. At some point, Michael called her because he said someone from the house had paged him. But by 11.30, Deborah was asleep and didn't wake up until the fire alarm went off after midnight. So this fire alarm that woke her up, this wasn't a smoke detector like we all have in our houses beeping. This was a whole house alarm. So when it went off, Deborah's first thought was that it was the burglar alarm, that somehow it had accidentally been set off. She tried to turn it off from the control panel that she had in her bedroom. But when that didn't work, she opened her door and found a hallway full of smoke. Her bedroom was on the ground floor, and it exited out onto a little deck, so she was able to get out that way. The house did have an intercom system that went to the outside, and while outside, Deborah said she heard Tim calling over the intercom. He couldn't get out his door because the upstairs was engulfed in flames, and he wanted to know what he should do. Deborah told him to stay in his room and wait on the firefighters to come get him. She then ran to the neighbor's house, had them call 911. When she went back to her house, that's when she saw Kate on the roof of the garage and had her jump. Investigators talking to Deborah wondered what kind of shock she was experiencing because she was talking freely, and most surprisingly, she was very calm. She mentioned the impending divorce and said she wasn't upset at all about it. It was a chance to start over. She seemed so completely detached from what was happening around her and the fire and everything that they were a little concerned about her. At times, she even seemed a little cheerful. But then there were other things that made this detachment set off alarm bells. She was already referring to the two kids in the house in the past tense and referred to them by their ages rather than their names. She referred to Tim at one point saying, he was my 13-year-old. But she was also asking about them, asking if they were able to be rescued. So she's talking about them in the past tense already, which is actually not very common for people when they first experience a loss. You're so used to talking about people in the present tense. But she's already in the past tense. And then she was saying she didn't know if they 
were okay because she wondered if they had been rescued. So she's kind of all over the place, and investigators are trying to size her up. And for a while, they told her that they didn't know if the kids were rescued. They didn't know what had happened. Now, they knew. They knew that the kids were in the house. They knew they weren't at the hospital being treated. It wasn't until 5.30 in the morning that they came in and were able to tell her that Tim and Kelly's bodies had been found in the house. And that's when Deborah got rattled. Whatever dissociation, detachment, shock she was experiencing, this was over. She responded the way she responded in the past to pretty much any negative emotion. She got very angry. She was angry at the firefighters for not saving her kids. She was angry at everyone she was talking to. She refused to speak anymore except to say that she wanted to see Michael. Michael, of course, had also been taken in for questioning. Unlike Deborah, he was not calm and not detached. Investigators expected him to break down pretty much at any point. He told them about his movements that day. After work, he took two of the kids to the hockey game. He dropped them off at 8.45 at their house with Deborah. Then at 10.35, Deborah paged him, and he kind of ignored it. And then a few minutes later, she paged him again. And then a few minutes after that, she paged him again. And he was kind of brushing off this attention-seeking behavior. He was at Margaret's house. And so when he went back to his house at 11.30, he then called her back. When she answered, he said she sounded drunk and... He told her she needed to get it together. He was going to have to intervene. He might have to call Child Protective Services on her if she couldn't take care of the children. And then he said that he knew that she had poisoned him. He hung up with Deborah and watched TV until he got a call from a neighbor in Prairie Village saying that the house was on fire. He told investigators about the house fire that they had before with that first house and then said he wouldn't be surprised to learn that Deborah set this house on fire for an insurance claim, since she was worried about finances in regards to their upcoming divorce. But never did he think that she would purposely hurt their children. She was struggling with alcohol dependency, and that may have led her to not take care of the children appropriately in his view, but she would never actually hurt them, not on purpose. Kate, being the only other survivor from the fire, was also interviewed. Her grandparents, Michael's parents, were present. Obviously, with this being suspected arson and Deborah and Michael being the suspects in that suspected arson, neither one of them could be in the room. Kate said she woke up to see smoke coming from under her door. She opened her bedroom door and quickly closed it after yelling for Tim. She was the one who made the hang-up 911 call. She said that she couldn't hear anything the dispatcher said over the sound of the alarm, and that's why she hung up. After she hung up, she crawled out of her window onto the roof and saved her life. Kate expressed love for Deborah and also expressed anger at Michael for hurting Deborah by leaving. So in reading what Kate said and Michael's memories of the arguments with Tim, I really believe Deborah was engaging in parental alienation here. 
And it's just an added layer of heartbreak here that in the middle of this tragedy and this trauma, Kate couldn't even lean on her father because of that wedge that was placed between them. Anyway, after Deborah was released from questioning, she had nowhere to go. Her house had burned down. Michael told the police that he would take care of it, and he got her a hotel room. However, Deborah seemed to think that Michael would let her stay with him like he did after the first house fire. When he wouldn't, she was really distraught. Her divorce attorney went to check on her at the hotel, and seeing the mental state Deborah was in, the attorney had her sent to the hospital. As for Kate, Michael filed for emergency custody, but the court gave temporary custody to his parents instead, pending the outcome of the fire investigation and to give time for Michael and Kate to rebuild their relationship a bit. Deborah was given supervised visitation, while Michael had unsupervised visitation. So this fire investigation, it started obviously right away, but there were also concurrent investigations into Michael's poisoning accusations, and the police also had to take a look at Michael's girlfriend's estranged husband's suicide, because really this is a lot happening in a short span of time, all connected to Michael. Now, the short story on those other investigations is that Michael did test positive for ricin poisoning, and investigators did digging and found Deborah's purchase of the castor beans from a nursery in Olathe, Kansas, which is another nearby suburb. And this backed up Michael's story about finding the castor beans. So this is connecting the ricin poisoning that we now know he had experienced with the source. And Margaret's husband's suicide was concluded to be a suicide. But the arson report, that was released on November 10th. Arson science is currently going through a purification process, meaning a lot of it's been debunked. It's been discovered that accidental fires have been falsely ruled as arson. People have gone to prison for arsons that were accidental fires, for murders through arson that were accidental. It's hard to tease out what this investigation found that would still be supported by current understanding and what has been debunked. My guess is what has been debunked is probably how they determined the accelerant being used. Anyway, their finding at this time is that this was arson, which even with the debunked science, this was almost surely arson. What's kind of contested, though, is that they believe a large amount of an accelerant was used and that it was poured down the hallway leading to the kids' rooms. And this cut off the stairs as a means of escape. Remember, Deborah's room is downstairs. In looking at the two likely suspects, Deborah and Michael, they took the clothes they were wearing that night. Neither showed any signs of an accelerant, and that would have been helpful because if you're pouring, splashing, whatever gasoline around, you might get it on your clothes, but neither had it on their clothes. 
Investigators also took cuttings from their hair to check for singeing, because whenever you light a fire with an accelerant, it grows big pretty quickly. And so if you think about putting a lighter fluid on a grill and throwing a match on it, it puffs up real fast. Singed hair would be expected. Michael's hair showed no signs of singeing, but Deborah, who actually had her hair cut twice in the week after the fire, did show singeing. You'd think that, well, she was in the house, she was in the fire, so of course she had singed hair. Deborah's own story is that she saw smoke and went out on the deck. She never got near the actual flames. The neighbor who called 911 said that when Deborah came to their door, her hair looked wet. But in her police statement about what happened that day, before she went to bed, she did not mention that she took a shower. So they're thinking her hair caught fire and she doused it with water. The evidence was building against Deborah, and on November 22nd, a month after the fire, she was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Tim and Kelly, two counts of attempted first-degree murder, for almost killing Kate in the fire and trying to poison Michael, and one count of aggravated arson. Deborah was held on a $3 million bond, which was the highest bond ever in Kansas history at that time. BTK Dennis Rader would blow that out of the water because he was later held on $10 million bond. But at the same time Deborah was being arrested and arraigned and all of that, Michael was still dealing with the aftermath of the poisoning. He tested positive for ricin poisoning, so that was confirmed. He had a brain aneurysm from the sepsis, and that needed to be operated on. Police videotaped his statement before surgery in the event he didn't make it. That's how touch-and-go things were at this point. They needed to have his statement to use against Deborah. Thankfully, he pulled through not just this surgery, but his entire recovery after. In 1996, there was a preliminary hearing on the charges against Deborah, and we saw a bit of the defense's strategy. They were trying to build some reasonable doubt by pointing at an alternative suspect, and their alternative suspect was Tim. Now, it's not clear that they would have carried this through the trial. Blaming the 13-year-old who died in the fire would not play very well with a jury. A mother throwing her son under the bus like that would not play well unless the defense could really, really, really sell this as the most likely scenario. But at the preliminary hearing, they only had to convince the judge that there wasn't enough evidence to take Deborah to trial and get a verdict that they could feel confident in. They had a nanny testify that Tim hated his dad and wanted to kill him and said something about burning down the house. Other friends and neighbors testified about Tim setting fires and being fascinated with bombs. And when the defense cross-examined Michael at this hearing, 
they asked about his relationship with Tim and how it was rocky and how it even got physical at times. Michael was also asked about the food he blamed for causing his illness. He had to admit that he didn't know that Deborah was the only one who prepared this food or the only one who had access to it. Tim may have prepared some of it. The preliminary hearing ruled that there was enough evidence against Deborah, so this was looking like it would proceed to trial, likely summer 1996. Deborah had to undergo some psychological evaluations first, and she was found competent to stand trial. But the psychiatrist had concerns about Deborah's state of mind on the night the fire took place. When you hear this story and when you read about Deborah and when you read about armchair psychiatrists diagnosing her, you hear a lot about her possibly having antisocial personality disorder, being a sociopath or a psychopath. And this psychiatrist said no. She believes that Deborah has a schizoid personality disorder. Now, people with SPD often come across as cold and indifferent. They have trouble with relationships, and they have difficulty communicating emotions and feelings. They tend to prefer relationships with few emotional demands, relationships that lack intimacy because they want to avoid dealing with those emotions. And I think the evidence of Deborah's work relationships and her relationship with Michael to some degree supports this, and maybe even to a large degree supports this. But in one way, Deborah would be an outlier with this diagnosis because the DSM says that those with SPD rarely show hostility or aggressiveness. And Deborah showed both and a lot of both. Maybe this could be explained by her abusing pills and then using alcohol while taking her psychiatric medications. Those can always have an influence. And what I've read, a lot of people see Deborah as possibly having borderline personality disorder. What they see that in is in how she dealt with Michael leaving both times. And that seemed to be a big link for a lot of her behaviors, this fear of abandonment. But I don't know that necessarily much more fits. The one person who did talk to her and is not basing their diagnosis on Anne Rule's book or, you know, me sitting here reading articles, she believes she has schizoid personality disorder. Meanwhile, the psychiatrist who saw her when she was in the Menninger Clinic, they saw possible bipolar disorder. Anyway, the defense began their own investigation of the fire in order to prepare for trial. Deborah was competent to stand trial. They were going to have to go with it. In doing their own investigation, they basically kept confirming what the state was claiming happened. Everything they found pointed right back to Deborah. They sat her down with all of this information and she more or less came clean. She denied that she used an accelerant, though. She has always denied that she used an accelerant or that she intended to kill her children. But she said, yes, she did set the fire. But she said that she and Tim poisoned Michael 
together. In my opinion, it looks to me like the defense was still willing to go all the way with this, all the way to court. According to a statement Deborah later made, her defense had evidence that she was not in control of herself at the time the fire was set, which would sound like an insanity defense in most other states, but not in Kansas. Kansas did away with both the insanity defense and the diminished capacity defense. And they actually got rid of those just months before the fire. They're one of only five states in the U.S. that do not allow for this defense. The one thing they do allow is that you can cite mental disease or defect. That's how it's written. That's not how I would say it, but that's how it's written. You can cite that as a partial defense. However, they have to prove that Deborah didn't intend to commit the crime. So in this case, I think they were basically going to give on the arson charge to try to get her off on the first-degree murder charges. Those were, by a large margin, the worst of the charges and would have the steepest penalty. In fact, the state wanted to go for the death penalty. Her attorneys firmly believe to this day, that Deborah did not intend to kill her children. However, the state believes that's exactly what the evidence shows. That's why she told Tim to stay in place when he called on the intercom what he should do. That's why they believe the arson science showed accelerant was used where the children were, not where she was. They believe that Michael practically gave her an ultimatum telling her get it together or Child Protective Services were going to get involved. And she reacted in the whole, if I can't have them, neither can you, and purposely killed her children. And they were going to seek the death penalty. Deborah, both to avoid the death penalty and also to keep her surviving child from being forced to testify about this traumatic event, asked for a plea deal. On April 13th, just six months after the arson, her attorneys reached out to the DA. But the DA had to take this to Michael because one of the things Deborah wanted in this plea deal is she did not want to plead guilty to trying to kill him. And in talking with Michael, they decided it was all or nothing. If she insisted that the charge for attempting to kill Michael goes away, they were going to say no. They were going to go ahead and take this to trial. They brought that back to Deborah, and she agreed to plead no contest to all of the charges against her on April 17th. A no contest plea is where the defendant does not admit guilt, but agrees the state has enough to convict her. It is a guilty plea without saying you're guilty. Now, the difference between a no contest plea and an Alford plea is subtle. With a no contest plea, the defendant simply does not admit guilt. In an Alford plea, they're actually asserting innocence, but then accepting that the state has enough evidence against them. On May 30th, Deborah's sentencing hearing was held. A psychologist characterized Deborah as a child, emotionally speaking. 
She was a grown woman without the ability to cope with adult problems. She managed to mask it for as long as she did because of her intelligence and her status in the community. Deborah told the court that her alcohol abuse, her mental health, and her marital problems were what was behind the tragedy. And the New York Times reported that she sobbed as she spoke. It's important to note that Kansas does not have a life without parole option. It's either the death penalty or life with the chance of parole. So BTK, who I referenced earlier, technically has a chance for parole in Kansas. Now, his chance for parole will come up when he's about 200 years old, but he still technically has a chance written into his sentence. Now, had Deborah committed this crime a few miles down the road in Missouri, she would have actually been given a mandatory life without parole sentence on the first-degree murders because Missouri is the opposite. They don't have life with parole for first-degree murder. So this is just a little interesting thing to show that in the U.S., in regards to sentencing, a few miles can literally change everything. In the end, Deborah was given two life terms plus two eight-year terms for the attempted murders and four years on the arson, all to run concurrently. She was given what we call a hard 40, meaning that she couldn't apply for parole for 40 years. Deborah has a fair chance of dying in prison. At the beginning of her sentence, Deborah did keep in contact with Kate, but Michael had to start monitoring the communication. Deborah started blaming Tim for the poisoning, and that was just too much to put on a little girl. As far as I know, Deborah and Kate are probably still in contact. Michael and Margaret did end up breaking up. In their first three months of their relationship, Michael lost his children. Margaret's estranged husband died by suicide. Michael's health was touch and go for a while, and they were both having to help their own children through incredible grief. Their relationship hardly stood a chance. For Deborah, like a lot of defendants with convictions, she began trying to appeal. But because she took this plea, her options were pretty limited. She wrote in a letter not long after she was sentenced saying that her attorneys had pressured her into taking the plea deal. They were so focused on avoiding the death penalty that they weren't really focused on maybe getting her off completely. In 2000, she filed an appeal saying that she was incompetent at the time she took the plea and couldn't have consented to it. The prosecutor said straight out that should this succeed and she get a new trial, he was going to seek the death penalty. Even knowing that, she decided to go forward with it, but the motion was denied. 2004, she tried again. This time she was saying that the new advances in fire investigation, like I talked about earlier, actually changed the information that would have been available to her at the time. So had she had this new understanding available to her, she could have gone to trial, 
to fight these charges, particularly the intent to kill her kids. That was based on the belief an accelerant was used. So if they could say, you don't know an accelerant was used, she may have been convicted of a lesser charge. The intent to kill her kids is what's behind her life sentence. This would be a pretty huge reversal if it was successful because it could potentially dramatically change her sentence. But this was also denied. And along the lines of getting that sentence reduced in 2014, Deborah challenged her 40-year non-parole sentence. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sentences like Deborah's couldn't be made by a judge alone. They had to be considered by a jury. But in 2015, a judge denied her claim based on two main points. One, Deborah entered the plea agreement knowing this was the sentence she was going to get. And two, the Supreme Court ruling was not retroactive. They weren't about to call juries and resentence every convicted murderer who had been sentenced by a judge. Deborah remains behind bars at the Topeka Correctional Facility. She is now 68 years old. She is eligible for parole in November of 2035, which will be 40 years to the day after her arrest. She will be 84 years old. The Farrar Greenhouse in Prairie Village was nearly completely destroyed in this fire. The neighbors bought the property from Michael and had the house raised. It is now a green space. Mm-hmm. 